Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. We're mixing things up in today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast and doing a cold open. And the reason for that is because since we recorded this show that you're about to hear in a second on Sunday evening, right after the Oscars, uh, there was a not a monumental trade by any means, but certainly a fascinating one that could have uh, deep rooted implications down the stretch and towards the playoffs with Jason Zucker going to the Pittsburgh Penguins. And so without knowing when my next opportunity to talk about it on the show would be and and risking that by then it would be outdated. I wanted to get into a little bit here. It's a great trade. It's very satisfying from the perspective that it makes sense for both teams given their directions. And there's a bunch of different layers to it. And so we're going to unpack them here. I think the, you know, let's start with the Pittsburgh Penguins perspective because I think that's the more sort of consequential one, at least for the time being. And it all starts and ends with the fact that Sidney Crosby is turning 33 this summer. Evgeny Malkin is going to be 34. And, you know, both guys are at the top of their game right now, but the Penguins know that eventually father time will come for them too. And that won't be the case forever. And I truly respect them going forward and trying to maximize this championship window and trying to get another one with those guys. And the fact that Jason Zucker's under contract for, I think, three more seasons after this one gives them a bunch of uh, kicks of the can as opposed to just going for a pure rental and putting all of their eggs in into one basket when both the Metro and the East are so deep and top heavy this season. And it's kind of, um, you know, it'd be leaving it to a lot of fate because they could be really good, but they could just run into the wrong team at the wrong time with how many good options there are and um, they could kind of wind up regretting it. So listen, the Penguins have been remarkable this year, uh, especially given all their injuries, but even, um, you know, if you just, if they ever had a full clean bill of health, the fact that they're fourth in point percentage, fourth in goal differential, uh, at five on five, they're top 10 in, to- in shot share, expected goal share and high danger sh- uh, chance share. Their power play has actually been kind of the weakling because it's only 13th in actual goals per hour, but even then they're fourth in expected goals per hour. And now with Crosby back and, and all these weapons, we'd expect it to be closer to that than what they've been so far. So they're really assuming that Tristan Jari is something remotely resembling what he's been so far, or maybe Matt Murray puts it together and turns his season around. Assuming the goaltending doesn't fall apart, it looks like it's one of the sort of deepest, most well-rounded, flawless teams out East. And we do need to touch on the injuries because that is clearly a big storyline here as well. The fact that you know, Mike Sullivan has been able to make it work. I think he's right there with John Tortorella in terms of doing the most with the least, given all the injuries and all the question marks and, and getting great performance out of the personnel he has had in the lineup. And it's been it's been quite the story. I mean, now that John Marino, uh, unfortunately, people listen to the show know how much I love him and his game. He's been the latest to succumb to that injury bug in Pittsburgh and the list of guys who either haven't been on IR or missed an extended period of time this season is basically like their third line, Marcus Pedersen, Jack Johnson, and then like Teddy Bluger and, and Jared McCann. And that, I think that's about it. And so that speaks, they, they've always had either Crosby or Malkin there to kind of uh, serve as the linchpin and work everything around them. But it's been quite the story. And now they're adding to their current roster without really taking anything away from it. And, you know, I think Zucker is going to do wonders to, in the short term, uh, help replace what they're missing with Gensel being out of the lineup. He's going to slot in perfectly next to Sidney Crosby on that top line wing. I think he fits stylistically uh, tremendously well in terms of the pace they want to play with at 5-1-5, the forecheck, everything they do to turn the puck over and keep opponents on their heels. 
And, you know, aside from last year, he's historically been an above average plus finisher. And, and you kind of think about the match between that and Crosby's playmaking, the offensive zone and ability to get the puck to shooters right in their wheelhouse. I think it's going to be a match made in heaven. With Zucker, he makes $5.5 million for his age 28 through 31 seasons. And I think they'll obviously see how it goes the rest of this year. They'll presumably get Gensel back at some point. And I think the, the beauty of this trade for them is if they want to, um, Zucker is good enough of a player, is well enough established in the league, and is on a reasonable enough contract given the age and the salary that they'll be able to turn around down the road and potentially trade him away if they need to clear up cap space to make other signings or other moves. And one thing we have seen over the years is that Jim Rutherford is certainly uh, not shy about doing so. And, and, you know, when I had Jesse Marshall on the show recently to deep dive the Penguins, we talked about this, but. On the one hand, you can kind of quibble with the fact that he has made a lot of mistakes and has had to kind of dig out of them. And you'd ideally like to see that not him not have to do so uh, that often. But at the same time, I do commend him for the ability to acknowledge when he's made a mistake and sort of pull the plug on it and move on as opposed to what many other gyms in this league do, which is double down and, and try to uh, sort of make it work, even though all evidence suggests that it probably won't just because they don't want to admit that they've made a mistake in the first place. And so whether it's been with trading for Ryan Reeves or Derek Brassard, Jamie Alexiak, uh, Tanner Pearson, now Alex Galchenyuk, most recently, we've seen time and time again that Jim Rutherford basically within a year has been able to sort of move on and get back something remotely resembling value for those guys. Um, you know, from, and the other thing I should say is it seems like it's a pretty big cost in the sense that they give up their first round pick and uh, a prospect people like in Kalen Addison. At the same time, I, what I will say is that, you know, for the Penguins, they're clearly in this win now mode. They're hoping that that pick is going to be in the high 20s and will be a player of consequence. And they get Zucker for more than one year, so he's not just a pure rental. And also, uh, acknowledging that, I think if they do wind up um, this summer deciding they want to go a different route, they'll be able to sort of recoup, I think, some of those draft capital assets by potentially moving on from either Matt Murray or Tristan Jerry and trading their rights to to a team that views them as their surefire number one. And so there's many different ways that the Penguins can kind of uh, recoup what they've lost here. I think for the Wild... It's encouraging that they were able to get back two legit assets for Jason Zucker, um, especially considering the rumors last year that, you know, they were looking pretty desperately to trade him for whatever reason. It felt like Paul Fenton uh, was on a hell-bent mission to get him out of town. And it's bizarre considering everything you hear is that Zucker loved it in Minnesota, that he was uh, an upstanding member of the community, that he wanted to be there and people in Minnesota wanted him there. And he was a heck of a player on the ice. And so it was, it was very bizarre. It felt like there was always something missing there. But you know, now that Paul Fenton's gone, we can kind of look back and be like, okay, that was probably just a miscalculation on his part, as opposed to some sort of indictment against Zucker as the player or the person. And so th- the fact that the Wild you know, it's never great when you're trading a player that's as, as established and still in his prime and still as such a useful contributor as Zucker is, but they're not going anywhere anytime soon. And I think they're viewing this as their best opportunity to sort of maximize on the return for him. And they didn't sell low. And, and so I think, you know, kudos to them for getting at least relatively fair value for, for a heck of a player. You know, Galchenyuk is a complete salary fill in a straight, I think, I wonder how much of it was, you know, the Penguins needed to move some money out considering they were taking money into their roster. But I think part of it was also like, it's sort of like has that bit of a sticker shock appeal where I think there's a certain number of casual fans out there that probably aren't paying attention that see this trade and think that, oh, the Wild got Galchenyuk. I remember when he was a top five pick. I remember he's been traded for Max Domi. He's been traded for Phil Kessel. He's still a legitimate asset. And I think that's that's certainly not the case. Uh, perception of him has soured so much around the league that the Penguins clearly couldn't get anything uh, remotely resembling roster value for him and basically just threw him in to sort of even up the money and, and make it work financially in this trade. And we'll see. I think he certainly hasn't shown anything uh, recently, especially this season, to suggest that he can be a useful NHL contributor still in, in any capacity, really. Now, it was it was kind of a terrible fit for him, and it, it sounds like he was hurt at the start of the year and just fell behind and fell out of the mix. And that could be an excuse. It could be something to it. We'll see. Um, he's still young enough that 
conceivably he could have a turnaround and provide value to someone at, at a discount value this summer, but I just don't want to see it. I think it's more likely that he's going to join the the list of top five guys from that 2012 draft and Griffin Reinhardt and um, Neil Yakupov as guys who are in their mid twenties and out of the NHL uh, sooner than we would have had any reason to expect at the time of the draft. And it's just looking back at that sequence, it's uh it's one hell of a draft. Um, the other thing I will say is it's really important to remember with trades like this, and this time of year, because we're going to see so many moves where a team that's not competitive this year trades a useful player for prospects. And in this case, I think getting a first rounder and getting a prospect defenseman that people seem to genuinely like and has value and was a, a second round pick in his own right quite recently, like those are legitimate assets. But I think we tend to, as a hockey community, overvalue prospects and sort of the unknown and, and the magic bean component of it where it's like, oh, this prospect or this pick could be anything. But in reality, the success rate on prospects that aren't sort of surefire generational top of the draft picks is so low relative to how we th- we tend to think about it and glorify it. And so in most, t- most cases, it's like this prospect could, if everything pans out and you know, he's in the perfect spot. Uh, he develops physically, mentally, ideally, uh, everything works out for him. He could conceivably be as good one day as this player he was traded for. And so just thinking about it that way, I know that, you know, you get them at this cost controlled price for a number of years and, and it improves your flexibility and you're trying to get those prime seasons back as opposed to a guy like Zucker going out, who's already 28 and conceivably is going to be on his way down. But I think sometimes we tend to inflate the perceived value of prospects and picks and, and we need to keep that in mind and, and sort of remain level-headed about it. So anyways, that's all I had on this trade. I think it was a really fascinating one. Um, and yeah, we'll see. Hopefully it's, it starts off a bit of a domino effect where we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, more teams feel the impetus to make some trades and give us some stuff to talk about. With that out of the way, we're going to get into the actual meat of today's show. And, you know, the Canucks this week, for those that aren't aware for whatever reason, are holding a week-long celebration of the careers of the Sedin Twins. And it's culminating in Wednesday's Jersey Retirement versus the Blackhawks. We're running this on Wednesday morning, so hopefully you guys will have a chance to listen to it before that happens. Um, but I think the content will stay pretty topical regardless of when you get a chance to finally tune in. And um, I decided to take advantage of the large contingent of media from all over the world that came into town to cover the event. And so I had two of my favorite uh, people in the industry on, and Uwe Bodine and Jonathan Linquist, And we discussed for about an hour uh, the careers of the city and the effect they obviously had on the Canucks franchise and the city of Vancouver. But I think even more importantly, and maybe more relatably to fans of other teams, the effect that they had on the league as a whole, the sport, and their homeland. And and I think the two guests that I chose to have on did a masterful job of capturing or articulating all of that with a personal touch. Um, I'm obviously biased because I you know grew up watching them closely and basically um, came into my own as sort of a hockey fan and, and, and really matured watching those guys and came to appreciate them up close. But I think they were so important for helping curate this beautiful brand of hockey that we have and we get to enjoy on a nightly basis these days. You know, they were pioneers, they were innovators, they were largely influential. Uh, we tried to capture that and add a unique touch to all the coverage you're going to be seeing and written in audio form this week about the Sedins. And so hopefully uh, you enjoy it. I get that it won't be everyone's cup of tea. Maybe you don't care about the Sedins. They've been out of the league for a couple of years now and you're wondering why we're doing this. But I just felt like it was important to um, to do this and to talk about the sort of ramifications, the impacts of it all. And, and um, you know, if you don't take something from it for whatever reason, we've got two other shows this week. We did a Predators deep dive with Chris Mason. We've got a Blackhawks deep dive coming with Mark Lazarus. And we'll be talking about all sorts of other subjects on those shows. So, uh, yeah, that you have that to look forward to. And then obviously with the trade, line, trade deadline coming down the road, we'll have various other guests and exciting things to talk about hopefully so hopefully you enjoy listening to the show as much as i enjoyed recording it and yeah we're gonna play it now and enjoy and we'll be back later this week with another show Three, two. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich. 
and joining me a special three-man pod i wish the listeners could see this contraption we've got going on i've got my mic set on a bunch of books on a wobbly table we just cracked some beers i've got my two favorite swedes in town it's always a uh looking for a good excuse to get you guys on the show and now that you're both in town for this special occasion for sedine week i thought i'd get you guys on and we'd uh we just have a couple beers and chat about the cities and chat about hockey and, and have you on. So it's my good buddy, Jonathan Linquist, my good buddy, Uwe Bodine. Both of you guys have been on the show, never at the same time. You guys have your own podcast. I'm excited to see if we can, uh, we're, we're kicking Linus out here and we're, we're, we're trying to establish our own little podcasting chemistry. That's nice. I love that. No, it's great to be on. And thank you for hosting Great Beer Tube so far. I like it. Yeah. I'm not an IPA guy. I've been in America for five years, so I'm kind of, I, I hate to admit it. I drink a lot of Cruise Light, uh, but this is good. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, so here's what we're going to do. I remember, I guess it was two years ago now or whatever, when the Sedins announced that they were going to retire. I did a podcast with Chris Johnston, and we did kind of like a sort of, not a memorial, because they obviously didn't pass away, but kind of other career talking about their effect, um, both on us personally and the league and, and Vancouver and the NHL as a whole. Um, but it happened, like I think based on the way they were playing that season and their age and the fact that, you know, their minutes were down, their production was down, their contracts were up. I think everyone kind of had an idea that this could be the end, but they announced it. I remember with like a week left in the season and it felt like everything was just happening so fast that it was kind of tough to gather all your thoughts. And now that we've had some time to sort of reflect on it and, and obviously the game itself has changed so much and we can talk more about how the Sedins would have fit in today's NHL. But I thought this was a good ex- excuse for us to sort of just get together, talk about the Sedins and, and sort of see where it goes. So I guess a good start for us is um, kind of just talk about like the effect. I don't know any, any stories you have personally or anecdotes in terms of like stuff you remember about their career or whatever sort of personal effect that they might've had on you. Well, I'm going to be completely transparent right now because I'm going to be, I'm going to be a big fanboy. So I grew up uh, in Ovik, uh, the Sedins hometown. Uh, so they were, my, my favorite players growing up, uh, they really were. Uh, and I remember like playing street hockey uh, or whatever. We always wanted to play like them, me and my buddies. It was never cool to score goals. You just want to have those quick little given goals, the passes. That's what it was all about. And that was so affected by them. And it started there. And it's been, I think for them uh, in Sweden, as in the US and Canada, it's been a long journey in terms of getting that uh, recognition. Uh, that, that I think they've gotten the last few years and even more so maybe even post-retirement. Uh, and we're going to get into that. The impact they had on the, on the World Championship uh, when they won in 2013 was really big in Sweden. And we're going to get to that. But first off, just my favorite players to watch, hands down, just because the way they played. I, I kind of miss that in today's game in terms of it's so speed-based now. Uh, so a lot of the smartness and the passing and all that yeah. gets lost a little bit. Yeah, so I remember. I'm actually as old as they are. So I'm oh, there you go. You're up, up here. <laughs> so you should retire. Yeah, yeah. It's about time, actually. No, but the thing I remember, I did my military service uh, where Jonathan grew up, basically, and we went uh, when we had like our nights off. We went into Ovik to watch. Basically, we wanted to watch them play. Like they had a pretty decent team at the time, but Moto. But uh, all we wanted to see were the Sedins because they were so special. It was because it had been a pretty long time since Sweden had produced like players of that you know caliber, uh, talent-wise. Well, I think. at that That's point, yeah, Peter that, Forsberg or yeah, Niklas Sundström or and not like even that, honestly. Because if you go back, uh, I don't think you had any Swede except Matt Sandin being da- drafted top three no. at that point. Uh, when Dan and Hank was selected uh, second and third. So they were so talented. I remember the buzz growing up. And and obviously they lost that final in 99, yep. which is for sure kind of like the 2011 uh, mm. of uh, of Moto. Uh, were the riots just as explosive? <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I was, I, was, I was 10 years old at the time. And I just remember the feeling of... I was too young to understand it. But the building, it was so empty. They lost at home. Right. Uh, just to add another parallel yeah. to, <laughs> to 2011. And it was uh, it was a surreal feeling. Um, it was such an upset, too, because they were like they were the team. Yeah. They, they were like destined to win. It's they like, were even more dominant than yeah. the 2011 Canucks. They were so good. And I think that haunted them, too. Uh, Dan yeah. and Hank, too, that they got to lo- uh, lose that final. And then the one in 2011, too. Uh, which made the world championship in 2013 even more important. Me and Ufa was talking about it walking here that 
from a Swedish perspective, yeah. uh, their legacy in Sweden, winning that title in the World Championships at home in right. Sweden 2013 was way more important than a Stanley Cup win would have been. Yeah, and that's also, how big the World Championships are in Sweden. Yeah, and much bigger, like the the fact that they won like back to back scoring titles, which which is a huge thing because there's not too many Swedes that have done. It's only Peter Forsberg, right? Yeah, yeah. So that that should be like something. It's pretty unique, but. In Sweden, old people, you know, the casual fan, they will talk about how they came home for the world championships and basically it turned a crappy team into a winning team. So, And, and let's talk about that because I think that's something that people over here deserves to know in terms of the leaders and, and the winners they were. Because uh, everyone will remember 2011 over here. But when they came back, the team Sweden had in 2013 wasn't good. They were like uh, playing... Uh, I mean, they had a tough time beating teams like Italy and Norway. Right. Yeah. yeah. They, they, Hockey powerhouses. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. They were just playing awful. Did not have a whole lot of like big names on that team, not a whole lot of NHL guys. And they came back, and it started right away. I know I would cover that tournament, and I know when they landed from Vancouver, mind you, this is, what, 16, 17 hours of flying uh, to get to Sweden. They called like an informal meeting right away yeah. as they got to the hotel to just assess the situation and kind of, and I remember talking to a guy on the team and saying that kind of changed everything. And then they went on to just be so number one series. Uh, I know they they did extra video on top of like the coaches' video meetings. They came to the ring forty five minutes early before any other teammate, so they yeah. kind of set the bar there. And also they had something you maybe a word you won't associate with the scenes, but they had swagger. I remember they came in, they played Canada, and and before the game. I remember Hendrik talking about Mike Smith being a flopper. And everyone was like, you didn't associate that with the Sedins because they were always so nice. But they had that confidence and they more or less demanded to play a lot. They'll play the PK. Yeah, I mean, that that was the thing. Like, they, they came in and the coach asked them if they wanted to come and play. And they were like, yeah, but we want to play PK. We want to play, <laughs> like... Uh, they they even the wanted to shoot out, yeah. <laughs> which didn't work out right. at that level either. No, they wanted to play so much. And on the ice, they were dominant. So I actually went through the numbers. They... Uh, they played four games. Um, so one in the group stage and then the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. Uh, Henrik had nine points. Danny had six. And even more so, the Sedin effect. Lou Erickson, he played six games before they came. Right. Scored two goals, zero assists. And mind you, against teams like Norway and Slovenia. Yeah. And he had uh, three goals and five assists the last four games when he played on that line. Right. That led to the contract that I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> some, uh, but some, he's, some, he's still reaping the rewards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... They were just so dominant. They had both of the goals in regulation in the quarterfinals against Canada. All three goals, three nothing win in the semifinals against Finland, and then half of the goals uh, in sort of a blowout of Switzerland in the finals. I think it was six one. So, for me personally, again, I'm a little bit younger. I'm thirty now, so that's I want to say maybe the single most dominant or single. There were two, but <laughs> most dominant performance I've seen in, in the national team in at least the last decade for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for me personally, I mean, now that we're sort of doing story time here, like, you know, I obviously immigrating to Canada in 96, I was four years old, you know, hockey in Serbia wasn't a real thing. So like my father was much more of a basketball person. And so that was something we bonded over. And first it was that kind of West Coast Express team with Marcus Naslin and Bertuzzi and Morrison that really captured the attention of Vancouver, got them back in the playoffs, got people talking about it. But ultimately that team kind of fizzled out and never wound up reaching the playoff success people hoped for them. And then after a bit of a down period, the Sedins came in and that's when I really got into hockey. And I honestly think if it weren't for them and, you know, Mike Gillis and Lawrence Gilman and Ellen Vigneault and that sort of 08 to 2011 Canucks team, I don't think I would have gotten into this industry in terms of like just being interested in hockey at this level because I never played, um, you know, even amateur hockey, but just the way that team played, how they were sort of going about like, trying to chaperone this new skill era of the NHL where it's not all about fighting and physicality, but you can win in a different way. And, you know, especially like that management group, that's just such a smart job of utilizing them. Like I remember for a couple of years there, their offensive zone start rate was like over 70, 80% and they were trying to maximize their skill and they built around those two guys. And so, you know, they have a special place in my heart, obviously from that degree, but you know, in terms of that skill conversation, you guys talking about their effect on Sweden and sort of everything involved there um do you think it's fair to say because i always think we always used to think of swedish players being more kind of like workmanlike and defensively solid and kind of two-way players 
And now it feels like, I mean, you're seeing an NHL draft where like Swedish forwards are going higher and higher. And we're going to see two guys in, yeah. in uh, Alexander Holtz and um, Lucas Raymond go in top yeah. five maybe this year. Do you I, feel like that kind of also yeah, like... I, I did this reflection a few years ago when the Swedish uh, World Juniors team were really good. And like the thing I thought about, like how, you know, they the players protected a puck, how puck possession was such a large thing. Like it was the... The pinnacle of Swedish hockey, at least at the time, we had some tougher tournaments after that. But the thing that hit me is like, this is they watched this deans. Like this is like the Swedish hockey uh, program is kind of based after what they did. So I think that's maybe the biggest legacy actually in Sweden. And it might be a thing that people don't think about. But like, if you watch uh, Swedish national teams or junior national teams, like. There's so much Sedin there. Just yep. by the way, like puck possession, the, the importance of that, and just how you know playing along the boards and you know the, the small finesse plays and stuff like that. So I think I think they've had a much huger impact than than we might think about. And I think something uh, I got two things on that. Number one, it's something I actually I saw uh Danny and Hank two days ago when we talked about uh well basically everything we had to sit down for um for my broadcast company back home in Sweden uh VSH mm-hmm. uh, which is his rights holder back back home and we talked about everything and and Henrik said that he felt he honestly said like we should be proud of what we fought through in terms of sticking to our game plan and playing the way we believed we should play even though everyone on the outside Yep. Uh, fans, media, even coaches uh, wanted them to to play a different style. And, and what we're seeing now is not people playing just like them, because we will never see that again, right. but something similar to that. And another thing I would like to add, um, just a small detail on the influence uh, that I don't think people over here think about, is someone that they really, really affected, I can say that coming from, from the same place as Victor Hedman. Hmm. I think they were huge role models for him in terms of a lot of stuff in terms of just pushing away the outside noise because obviously he was drafted second overall uh as as they were if we yeah. put them together and uh and being serious uh turning away all the distractions outside noise and also being very uh try to be as serious as possible about school because that's something that dan and hank mm-hmm. took a lot of pride in being young and and something victor followed suit and so i think uh even though they play it completely different style and um i don't think he obviously didn't take too much uh from them on the ice yes. i think as a person and how you handle being uh, a player of that status and just how you take care of yourself in the summers because they used to work out yeah. in the summers on ice uh, every now and then i i think they were really important as role models for him well i think they kind of like redefined this idea of toughness right because you usually used to think of it as like guys who fight and and that's the way you exhibit your toughness and i think early on in their careers was sort of misunderstood because the game especially pre-lockout when they came into the league was in such a different place and i think it was interesting to see you know this happens when someone ends their career when someone passes away and when we sort of get kind of nostalgic and reflective on them but you saw the outpouring around the league of even non-swedish players that when they announced they were retiring were kind of coming out and talking about their impact on the game and how much they respected like them as competitors and as warriors and it's funny to think back that this was ever a discussion but like you watch some of those tapes now and like i mean their bread and butter was like this quote-unquote gritty like cycle behind the net where they're just get taking like cross checks in the back and and never missing games really like that was a crazy thing to me i know henrik sedin had that ironman streak but i think he played all 82 games like 13 different times in his career and so for them to sort of have just like defensemen just leaning on them every single night and taking that punishment and never really like retaliating just playing their game and still kind of doing their damage on the scoreboard i thought was kind of the cool i guess they were ahead of their time they were i mean because obviously they struggled for the I mean, first few years, yeah. as we talked about, like they had a really tough time, you know, living up to the Lothic expectations after being drafted so so high. But I think they were ahead of their time. And, you know, when, when the hockey changed, especially after the, the lockout in 05, was it? Yeah, 04, 05. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, I think that's really when, you know, the game finally was in the right place yeah. for them to, to shine. and that's what we saw later like they were able to to dominate in a, in a very special way one thing i think we should remember when we talk about the fact that it took a little bit longer for them is if you look at players 
of that status drafted at high winning scoring titles uh, it, it'd be hard to find players that are less physically gifted right if we're honest like yeah. they weren't big they weren't naturally strong they weren't naturally quick and explosive they really and they did that they had to work for it to get that yeah. uh get the skating to where it needed to be, be strong enough to play the cycle game. Because as you said, you're going to make yourself a target if you play the cycle well, game. I have a question for you. I don't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but do you think that was always, or do you think that they realized eventually as they got going in their careers, it had to be that way? Because towards the end of it, mm. like, I mean, now Daniel Sedin's like running, mar- they're doing marathons. I remember like in their final season, they were age, whatever, 37 or whatever. And they were like at the top of the Canucks fitness testing for like every single thing. I think they still would be. It, it's funny. It's funny as you say, because I asked them like, what's a normal day? Yeah. We, and then Hank told me, yeah, we dropped the kids off in school. Then we meet up and I run a half marathon and chat a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And that's like a typical day. Yeah, and then they go day, home yeah. and take care of errands. And, and then they have kid, the kids have sports at night. So they're still at that level. I think it was something uh, from my understanding that they had to kind of learn and figure out yeah. that this is something we need to, to work on to be yeah. able to. I think actually Michael Samuelson called him chubby the other day when we had our talk like well the first few years so there are some photos left i I think it's out there for everyone to see that they weren't in the shape that they are even now when they're retired Uh, so it was definitely a process for them learning uh how to take care of themselves but as they kind of did they really really did that so i think that's but that's something we have to remember but if you look at take take guy take a guy like I don't know, anyone, take Ovi mm-hmm. or Crosby, they're just specimens. Right. They're either so strong or quick. Yeah. And Danny and Hank never had that. So they had to rely on two things. Number one, smartness, which we obviously all saw, but also just really working. And the game they played, they worked out a little bit different. They ran a lot. I mean, we see the they do in marathons and stuff now. And they had to, the way they played was so different. It wasn't explosive. Right. They wore teams down. Yeah. So I think they almost in a way, almost worked out differently too because they played so differently. Whereas a lot of guys, I mean, what's an average shift? Like yeah. 35, like, yeah, 40 yeah, seconds? 40 seconds or so, yeah. Or whatever. I mean, but we all seen the shift. Right? Yes. They had that different uh, stamina that yeah. I don't think a lot of hockey players have. And that was also something, uh, just to to clarify, we had Michael Samuelson. We were here with a, with a Swedish group of 50 people that are here to to experience this this great weekend in Vancouver and uh, we had Michael Samuelson at our hotel when you know he answered questions and talked a lot about the Sedins and he said something in- interesting like I don't think he had like uh, statistical evidence to back it up but it was like he at least the two and a half years he played here in Vancouver what he felt was like they scored a lot of goals late in their shifts right. just by wearing as you said wearing yeah. the opponents down yeah. just and I think that's where the, the stamina part obviously comes in. Like they were really, you know, just cycling and the other team had to, you know, hunt them around the ice and, and eventually, you know, they got too tired and yeah, they scored. The headline from this podcast is going to be uh, Michael Samuelson body shames the city. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but so here, here's a question I have for you guys, because I don't know if you guys have heard his podcast. So Bill Simmons has his podcast on the ringer. It's the book of basketball. And he basically, he deep dives individual players now and kind of goes back over their careers. And so one recurring uh, sort of question or theme they have on those shows is, did this player come into the league at the right time too early or too late, just in terms of like where the league was to sort of maximize their abilities. And with the Sedins, I think it's such an interesting question because obviously after the lock, like they had those four or five years and the game changed so much after the lockout and they really came into their own. But on the one hand, like I think they came in at a good time for themselves because they were so ahead of the curve in terms of like some of the skill passing they were doing, like the stuff. I mean, every team now is working like one guy behind the net passes it out front and you get a much easier look or sort of the East West passing they were doing. And it's like, so they had an advantage in the competition, but on the other hand, I think it was kind of like wasted in the sense that if they came around now in 2020, like think every night they played, there'd be just gifts being passed along on Twitter of like this crazy passing play they had. And I felt like they came around too early from the perspective of like the internet kind of appreciating all the ridiculous stuff they did, even when they didn't score. Yeah. From a gifting standpoint, sure. Right. But from a playing standpoint, I, I don't think I fully agree. Maybe a couple of years later. Mm. uh, But I think what happened is in a lot of ways, had they been like, 22, 23 post lockout because they were 26, correct? They're born 80. Yep. 
uh, so 25, 26. So they're kind of in their prime. Uh, but I think that was the perfect storm because the league was still slower. A lot of guys that were as fast were still in the league, but the game was more open. Yep. So they had the space to play their game. Uh, whereas today, it's so much about having that foot speed. Uh, and I, th- I think we see, I mean, f- to me, they're really t- two playmakers. Yeah. Danny scored out of necessity, but right. he's also a playmaker yep. uh, at heart, I think. Yeah. Uh, and that is sort of a dying breed. I mean, we, we still have Joel Thornton playing. We have Nick Baxter playing. But that, correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't see that many pure passers and, and Adam Oates or, yep. or Henrik Sedin or players like that. It's, it's sort of dying out. You have to have that speed. So I think in a lot of ways... I mean, they would have done well in the 80s, yeah, they too. Would, yeah. Well, I think <laughs> they would have adjusted to today's game just in terms of like their positioning and their smarts yeah, were so yeah. good. They would have made up for that lack oh, of foot speed. Oh, for sure. Like, and we got to remember, because I love having conversations like that, because yeah. I remember people always telling me, another Swedish player, people always say, like, imagine if Forsberg would have played today. Right. He wouldn't kill it, like, with no hooking. Yeah. I go the other way. I say Forsberg was so great because he was one of the few skilled guys who could play right. that way. But we got to remember with that is obviously Forsberg would have had great numbers. Obviously, the Sedins would have been great in any era. Yep. I really think so. Even if they came in in 95, uh, they would have added the strength necessary to be able to play their game. Yep. Uh, maybe not to a point where they would have won scoring titles. Or had iron streaks. <laughs> or had iron streaks, for sure. Right. But they would have been effective. Uh, I, I do believe that. But on the other hand, they got a couple of years to build themselves up. So... I do think maybe one or two years later. Other than that, I think it was kind of good timing. But here's the thing that's interesting to me. Like, so I was thinking about this. You know, the game has changed so much beyond just like the on ice in terms of like the business side of things in terms of how we view prospects, right? And like, it feels like the game is younger and younger now kind of out of necessity because obviously it's such a speed game and you're trying to get young guys in there. But also like, if you have a guy making 700k and he can perform at the NHL level, you want to get him in there because you're probably paying if you're the Leafs, you're paying three guys 11 million dollars or whatever, right? And you kind of need to fill those roster spots. But with the Sedins, you mentioned that first year they really broke out, and after the lockout, they were 25 or 26 already. At this point, if a prospect had the career arc they had, think about how much people would be freaking out in the internet era where like they were like having nice 30, 40 point seasons, but they were playing 12, 13 minutes a night. They were like second, third liners on the team and they were drafted second and third overall. Like just think about a guy like that's the equivalent of right now, Jonathan Drouin, for example, who's already been traded. It feels like he's been in the league for 20 years and might retire any day now. Like that's like him basically at this point, if he just all of a sudden became like an 80 point guy. But I think a lot of that goes into that the game was different. Right. And it was more of a it was more of a physical game. And a lot of guys had to add strength necessary to play in that era. So and that takes time. It takes time to build muscle, right? So and also to learn how to handle the punishment. Now where it's more of a speed game, you'll be at your quickest at what, twenty-two? Yeah. I don't know, like when you I'm not a physical performance, whatever. Well we know I think we also learn more that like guys' peaks are younger than we thought, right? But I think peaks do come earlier now yeah but i also believe that they were so different in the way they played right. and also the tools they had uh again i go back to that like if you look at i mean name any superstar except wayne gretzky right that didn't have like a physical trait that was either like size and strength or uh explosive skating or something like that yeah. it's really hard to find so it made them so different so i think a lot of times when we talk about the typical development uh, it's hard to apply it to them. But obviously, had they played, I think, on a different team, because we're talking about a team that had the best line in hockey, so are you going to mm. take the power play minutes away it's from true. the West Coast Express? Yeah. You're not going to do that. Uh, and you shouldn't if your goal is winning, because at that point, there's no denying that that line was better than the Sedins, yeah. even though they may have earned a couple more minutes of ice time. But had they played for a different team, uh, maybe would have seen them produce more uh, pre-lockout for sure but it's also interesting to see what players they played with a lot yeah. of times I mean Trent Klatt yeah Alex Burroughs yeah. I mean no disrespect but it's well every like, every player that played with them had a career year right like Anson Carter yeah, scored 30 something goals yeah. with them I mean uh, yeah Steve Bernier Michael Samuelson you know like and you go down the line they pretty much every single person they played with had their best season but yeah. I'm also I'm gonna go against that because what I think is they had each other Yes. I mean, how many star they players were, They were each two, other's best line. Yeah, how yeah. many star players have, have two great line mates? Yeah. That's it's not it. like we're talking about Nick Backstrom and OVN, the third superstar. Yeah. Or Crossman Malkin don't play on the same lines. Right. But it's always 
the two of them to have three guys on the same line yeah we see it with the abs now every uh quite often but for the most part you don't see three great players on the same yeah but i mean we're not talking about great players we're talking Mm -hmm. about probably like third liners yeah yeah and that's what i think you should expect because that's what i that's how good they were i mean the same thing we're seeing with a guy like Connor mcdavid i'm not saying that they were Connor mcdavid mcdavid is better yeah but the thing he's doing with Sarkassian, that's kind of what you should expect from a, from a player of that status. Like, if you're that good, you should take your average third liner and have him make him a 20-goal scorer if he's smart enough to just find open space and get the puck out of the corner. That's what I do think, especially talking in, in this era when we have the cap, that's what you need. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, well, that's the point of having a superstar. They're going to make whoever they yeah. play with better, of course. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, we can kind of move towards, we talked about like sort of the personal effect they've had. I, I think in terms of the effect on the league, we talked about like redefining toughness and stuff. But don't you like when you watch today's game, you see so many things that now like guys are so skilled and they're practicing this stuff in the off season together at all these camps and they make it look so easy. But I remember at the times like when Henrik would just like at center ice, just take a slap pass and it would just go off the boards and you'd be like, oh, why is he like icing this puck? And then all of a sudden it would go like directly to Daniel and he'd like work the angles or they do obviously like the tip pass, the slap tip passes and and stuff like that like everyone's doing that now but at the time there was like holy crap these guys are playing a different sport yeah and that's something we got to remember here because i always hear the talk about the uncanny ability to know where the other one were it wasn't that it wasn't the twin superpower this was mechanical yeah and thought out they practiced the slap pass the bank pass all of that it didn't come from oh i i feel like danny's gonna no it was like geometry he's like i'm gonna hit it at this angle this is something they worked on and they played together since they were 14, they actually played on different lines uh, up until 14 because they were both centermans. Uh, but they started to play together at 14 and have been playing together ever since. And if you look at, I think you have a hard time finding anyone at this level who played together with the linemen for so long. So they, they just had an ability to work on it. And I think that's something that uh, really set the standard. Uh, and I think we're honestly just seeing this day and age. I mean, the first step in, in off-season development was guys starting to actually work out. Right. Uh, like going to the gym. Yeah, stop smoking cigarettes and get in the gym. <laughs> exactly. And then the next step was get on the ice earlier. And then we had, that was mostly skating. And now you have actual skill stuff. I think Crosby's a guy who's, who kind of started pushing that yeah. too. Uh, but just working on the skill uh, side of things is something I kind of, at least from a Swedish perspective, kind of got lost a little bit uh, up until the last few years. It was mostly about your physical fitness in the summers and i don't know how much they actually worked on on ice uh stuff in the summers but i do think showing they show that if you work on place yeah you can have a lot of success because they worked on all those plays that we thought were just magical that's hard work that goes yeah into that i mean yeah it's you can talk about like twin magic and all your own but in preparation for this podcast i was going back and watching some of their like highlight reels and some of their best plays and obviously my favorite is still the goal uh it was like the last game of the season against the flames yeah, that, that, that famous over. one yeah against yeah, kepper software yeah. i mean that was one of those where it's like you know i think it was Airhoff, like like kind of like passes like slap shot and in full speed henrik sitting through the legs no look like behind the back tips it in stride to daniel who then in a tight space goes through the legs to beat a great goalie. Okay, I can say twin superpower for that one. I'll buy that. <laughs> it was, but it's also but it's also like skill from the perspective of like the touch to like yeah. execute that. And, right? and that's something I feel to get into a more philosophical discussion about it. I remember me and Heinrich had a long conversation about uh, this a couple of years back. Um, just playing street hockey. They played so much street hockey. And that's something I found out like going to the US. Um, I don't know when I when I grew up, and even when I play, you know, just pick up hockey or whatever, floorball back home. The best player always passes. The best player always tries to move the puck, and it's cooler. Again, like I said, it's cooler to throw a nice pass than to score it. Yeah, and that's something that I found. Uh, it's a little bit different in terms of mentality when I came over to the US, where it's more about scoring. But going back to that, I remember Henrik told me about they practice and all that, but everything they or he did, but same goes for Danny, obviously. All the passes he, he we see him pulling off was stuff he tried playing on the streets or at the pond with his friends. That's where he tried all the stuff that turned out to be magical at yeah. the NHL level. So that's something I think, again, like for, for people that are involved with um, youth hockey or whatever, 
you got to remember that that's so important to have kids just play the game uh, and and just have fun. And without, I think, honestly, without any supervision. Because all those games were played with no parents, no coaches, what have you. Just two nuts on the street, whatever, and go and have fun. Um, so that's something, a lot of the stuff, yeah, a lot of it is hard work. But a lot of it is just creativity from, from playing the game for fun as a kid. And it's so cliche, but that's the way it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was going through some of their numbers. And, you know, obviously each guy had a thousand points. They both won back back to back. Um, Art Ross, I feel like they both should have won the hearts. I, I still feel that Corey Perry stole that heart from yeah. from Daniel the second season. But yeah, I mean, they had some they, they just some crazy numbers. I was looking at you know like they're five on five, especially you would think that. And they always the Canucks always had a good power play, and they were always like the puck would be moving and they were humming. I think that's kind of where I think in a way they came in a bit too early to maximize it because I was still watching some of those and like the shift against the Oilers. Yeah. You look at it and it's like Matthias Olin and you, Lucas Krejcik. Or yeah. on the ice with them and yeah. Kessler. And it's like, at this point, it'd be like their best def- offensive defenseman and then another forward. And like, think about if you had another skilled player on the ice on the power play at all times yeah. to like benefit from their passing, but as opposed to like Lucas Krajic randomly roaming. And also it. the way it just looked, they just moved the puck around and had the shift, obviously, you, you, I watched it the other day too. And it, it's just you move it up to a point and then you take a slap shot. And it's not even a one timer. Yeah. Like, it feels like every shot on that shift was a, was a slap shot that yeah. wasn't a one timer. And you never see that today. So how do you maximize that and how do you maximize coaching of the power plays? Uh, yeah, I do agree. They would have been way more effective at, at 5 on 4. Man, if I, yeah, so uh, my favorite stat, uh, in 2009-10, Henrik Sedin on the ice for 95 on 5 goals for 49 against. So, yeah, and then I had like 40 or whatever power play points. It was, it was ridiculous, but... Yeah. yeah. I, I actually checked it for the two years that they won the Art Ross. Yeah. Uh, during the time together... They were on the ice for twice as many, more than twice as many five-on-five goals. Mm-hmm. I think it's 167 to whatever. Yeah. But there were more than twice as many goals scored at five-on-five when both of them were on the ice together. So they were that dominant. Even I, Yeah, I get the zone starts. Yeah, their usage but, was nice, but yeah, I but, mean, but they were But that does it. not give you that much of an advantage. It's just so, so impressive. Yeah, so the other thing I was looking at was... Um, I was listening to this interview with, with Brian Burke and he was talking about how, uh, like the day of, how they got them and some of the trades and, yeah. and kind of revisiting that was sort of crazy. I think that's sort of the the most, like the, the least repeatable part of this. Like it's like, we're going to see two line mates where they skill, but it's like two twins who also get drafted like that. And, and you see all the stuff that had to happen and like the league was in such a different place. Just listening to Brian Burke talking about, you don't know how much of it is true and how much is not, but it's like, I remember he made a trade with, I think, like, Tampa Bay, but Tampa Bay had already made a second trade with New York, expecting Vancouver to make... It was, like, all this stuff is yeah. ridiculous. And somehow, obviously, Atlanta was the one who got the short end of the stick, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> agreeing to take Patrick Stefan instead. But, I mean, that, that's something they, they talked about. They were... I mean, they were... They were pretty much set that they were not going to the same team. Yeah. They, in their mind, it was like they were going their separate ways. And it was... Like as a thought experiment, it would be interesting just to like what would they have been able to do on their own. I think they would have been fine players, but like it's like together, it's like a completely different package. So, um, I mean, Hendrik Sedin in Atlanta, or Here, here's a thought for you. I'm gonna go ahead and say that Danny would have been a center had he been drafted to a different team. Yeah, I can see that. And you think he would have played like more of a playmaking? He would have played play, play more of yeah. I mean, he was always as I said, like he was a shooter out of necessity. I think he was helped. It was funny because when I sat down, we talked about he gave Hank a lot of a lot of he chirped him a lot about his shot. Uh, uh, and I, Henrik was going on. We were having this serious conversation about how they kind of defied the odds and like we were never the greatest sk- skaters never had the best shot best shots and then he just interrupted him was like speak for yourself because he, he felt that he, uh, he had the better shot and when i asked him about their best highlights uh <laughs> hank said uh, he said a weird backhander against minnesota i wasn't I, i'd never seen it hmm. uh i'll post a link later or whatever and and Danny said that every every single goal Henry scored was always a highlight because they were so rare. Well, I always, <laughs> so, used, to, I always used to joke that Henrik was just passing the puck into the back of the yeah, net whenever oh, he that's, that's what so. happened. But I was going to say one thing that gets lost in that is that Danny is left-handed, mm. and for the most part, I find I don't have the numbers. My impressions is that guys that have their bottom hand as their strong hand, like if you're right-handed and you're a righty, uh, you'll shoot harder. And it's so rare to see uh, a right-handed guy. 
or sorry, a left-handed guy be le- be a lefty. Right. Uh, so I think that helped his shot too. It's something little detail that I think matters. But but I think I do think he would have been more of a playmaker had he played on different teams, and I think he would have been a center. Yeah, it did feel like yes. Yeah, sometimes in you know like the ship, for example, like. He- He's shooting, it feels like, almost like to put the other team out of his misery to, like, end the shift and, and just let them go back to the bench. Because, yeah. like, he, he'd like to pass it again back to Henrik, but he just knows to do, he'll get it back anyways. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Dimitri, I'm going to put you in the spot yeah. here. Because me and Ofer were having a conversation here, walking here. Yeah. Swedish forwards, mm-hmm. all time. Right. We're in their discussion here. Yeah. Off the top of your head, where would you place him? Okay, so who who who's in in the discussion here? Like Peter Forsberg, Forsberg yeah. is going to be number one. Yep. Yeah, Matt Sandin probably number two. Sandin or... is in there. Zetterberg, Alfredson, Backstrom, Backstrom maybe. I think that's it. Kent Nelson has the highest scoring season, but that was back in the eighties. Well, you know what the crazy thing is so Zetterberg was in that draft, right? And if you look at it, Brian Burke actually called it the worst first round first round of any NHL yeah. draft. And yeah, like I think Barden Havlat at twenty six was like the third yeah. best. Player yeah, in that first round, Pavel Brendels and Jamie Lundmark. But then, and- in the seventh round, you had—I I wrote it down here somewhere. Like you had like Zetterberg, you had like I think Redeem Verbata, um, and then like Ryan Miller in the fifth round or something. Like it, it, speaking of like generational divides and how much it's changed yeah. and all this stuff we've talked about, I think like go back drafting has improved significantly. Like you look at some of the guys who are being drafted in in the first round there, and you're like, oh my god. Like, that was a little nugget from our sit down that uh, they mentioned too. That I think for the Detroit fans listening, that they they said that. Back in those days, uh, playing, obviously, Detroit games uh, were out, out east, so they started three hours early. So they always used to watch Detroit because they loved watching Zetterberg, and that's mm-hmm. that was like their favorite players to watch because yeah. they came in early at the rink, whatever, so they could watch a little bit before they get, their game started. Um, so it's just – and I can kind of see where they would – that was, I think, the only tandem that was close to them in terms of chemistry. Maybe pairing gets off at their, the height of their powers too yeah. uh, during that era. Yeah, I'd have to look at the number. I, I think – Right after you get done with Forsberg, I'd say like they're they're right there. Like you can kind of nitpick and go on personal favorites and stuff. But I think, yeah. and the other thing, you're right. It is so tricky because like you can't separate them. I think everyone agrees that Henrik was a superior player because he played center and it felt like he could really play with anyone. Whereas Daniel was a bit more dependent on playing with Henrik just because of their positions. But um, if you put them together as one, like it's yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's so hard to divide them. But I think as you mentioned, I think. Henrik has like four top 10 finishes in terms of the scoring race and Adani's at two or something. His numbers is a little bit stronger. He has the higher scoring season. Era adjusted, I think it's, or I know it's the highest uh, highest scoring season uh, yep. by hockey reference. Uh, era adjusted stats. So it's something it's, that's worth remembering too. But I think during the conversation, I mean, obviously you can look at a Sandin or an Alfredson and say that they had uh, a longer career uh, and they obviously got going a little faster. And played a little bit longer too, uh, but in terms of the peak, I mean, it's hard to argue the MVPs and the scoring titles. Yeah, that three-year stretch there with like the Stanley Cup final and then winning those individual awards, like they were just—it felt like every night, like they were on every night. But then, like they could, when they cranked up to their absolute highest level, like the other team was just begging them to stop. Like it was just too much. Yeah. Um, or is there anything else about these two guys you want to you want to get into? Like we kind of talked about like personal effects, the effect on the league, the effect on Sweden. Like, I mean, it is a cliche, but or a cliche, but it's it's been talked about so much. But I one thing that do it really really stands out to me, uh, getting to know them a little bit and and just seeing being here in Vancouver a couple of times. It's 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 the people they are, and it's something you say a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, great players, even greater people. I'm not going to say that. But I'm going to say that they do stand out. Yeah. There's a lot of good people uh, in hockey in the world. But, I mean, the stuff they've did, did in terms of time they've given, uh, money yeah. they've donated, yeah. uh, and just the way they've treated people, uh, be it teammates, be it us in the media, uh, be it fans, it really, really stands out. And I think that's, that's a legacy. When you talk to guys, if you talk to someone like... Pedersen. To me, it's very clear that what they did off the ice and the, their legacy in BC has more of an influence on him. It's something it's that he's really, uh, I think, realized coming over here, and and he kind of realized what's expected of a star in Vancouver uh, and the high bar that's been set. And I think that's something that for for every player, I mean, no one can really play like them. You can take stuff in terms of the possession game, but yeah. We're not going to see that, I think. But the way they carry themselves, uh, I think, is uh, 
it's going to be their lasting legacy. Yeah, they were a Titans of the community. I mean, it's so rare now like to see two guys, I mean, to see anyone be with one organization for their full career and for, especially for them for like 18 seasons, right? Like, yeah. and, and another thing I want to add to that is if you look at the way, I mean, they were treated, yeah. the stuff they were called during their yes. first five or even 10 years. We can go back yeah, to... Yeah, remember the Amy Ben and Tyler Sagan. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, I mean, that, that, that stuff was going on in like, the, in like the mid-2010s. Like, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, and I'm, I'm saying 2010s. stuff was said that people would get fined for today or I mean, yeah. you would get fired. Fired. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. stuff that was said and not a single slip up. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's pretty remarkable because I don't think, uh, I remember the Brian Burke uh, sport, uh, he narrated a Sportsnet feature about them and he said something about like, had there ever been two players that caliber taken this much uh, crap, basically, yep. and I, I don't know if we're ever seeing that. And they still carry themselves with so much grace. So I think it's something again, like it's so cliche to talk about the people they are, but they they were really remarkable, and they, they still are. And I think they have, um, again, like being from from where I'm from. If I go to a real personal level, it's something that I can be proud of. I can be proud of. I sh- I'm so proud of being over here, working here. And I hear like my my hometown it's thirty thousand people and we have Forsberg and Nasland and mm-hmm. Hedman and the scenes coming out of there. But you can be so proud of having people like the scenes coming out of there and seeing the way that they kind of set an example for someone like Victor uh to kind of carry on the legacy. Cause I also think he's one of those guys that yeah. is a true class act in terms of being an ambassador for the game yeah no they that's a great way to put it. ambassador for the game ambassador for the city and that's why i also think like selfishly it was it was not cool but it was kind of like nice to not see them in their careers like wearing different uniforms like trying to chase a, a cup ring i'm sure like that thought at least crossed their mind at some point towards the end there one with vancouver clearly going out of the playoff race but like just being that seeing them associated with vancouver and that's why you're going to see like this full week like it's dedicated to the Sedins, the Canucks as an organization are pulling out all the stops to honor them and eventually retire their jerseys. And so um, it's no surprise, like they fully earned all of that respect. Yeah. So Hall of Fame, yes or no? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I honestly, there's absolutely no argument, like first ballot walk right in. I mean, it's it's also the International Hockey Hall of Fame. It's not even that, like, like we just spoke about the effect they had on an entire different country, but also like, you know, the world championships, yeah, winning the Olympic Olympics. gold medal, like... I mean, I think it's not even an argument. You could make an argument that just based on the NHL alone, they'd be shoo-in right away first ballot, but you took the totality of their careers. It's a no-brainer in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Yeah, no doubt in my mind. Um, so what, what, I guess I'm, I'm going to see you guys at, at the draft. Like, I feel like now that, you know, it's a good tie and we were talking about all the skill and all the young Swedes. Like, there's there's a lot to cover now. Yeah, finally. Like, I mean, finally. But but it's been so many defensemen. <laughs> yeah, it's like two years. Yeah, that's oh, true. Okay, so. we're going there. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, finally, a high Swedish prospect. Yeah. <laughs> two years from Dolly. I know. Yeah, exactly. course, no, but it's been so, so many defensemen. And this year, it seems like the, the three highest guys are going to be forward. So that's a, that's actually a nice change for Sweden, I think. I love looking at like the teams those guys are playing on too, right? Like they're both playing on like good like notorious teams in Sweden, but like yeah. some of the na- some of the names of the players like it's, it's like throwbacks from like I think like Brandon Gormley's playing on one of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, Jason Garrison. Yeah, and the goalies the goalies for uh Kari Ramo. What is it? Yeah, it's Kari Ramo and yeah. it's also um what's his name? Nicholas Vedberg yeah, yeah, who had sure. a nice little cup of coffee with the Bruins as well. So there's a exactly. lot of a lot of names kind of flashbacks. Yeah. I mean, like Nicholas I saw like Nicholas Fors, uh, Borgforst there. Yeah. I was like, "Oh my god, I remember that." <laughs> Patrick Berglund, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's yeah, it's an uh, NHL graveyard basically. Okay, Dimitri, can I throw you another one since we're on we're this is a full-on Swedish episode, yeah. right? So I'll take it a different different route here. So we're also discussing the best Swede this season. Mm-hmm. And I think our top 3 Four, maybe. We'll say Markey, Pedersen, Hedman, Zibanejad. Yeah. Who do you go with? So far. I think it's it's got to be, I think, Pedersen, right? Like, I, I actually have him in the MVP discussions. So yeah, I, I read your story about it. Yeah, so I, I kind of really thought on that. I mean, just look at the fact. The, the tricky thing is him is, like, I think people look now and some of these guys are putting up such hilarious video game numbers where it's like, yeah. you know, like, Andre Settle already has as many points as Jamie Benn had when he won the scoring title exactly. a couple of years ago. And, and so guys are going to get into, mid, like, early, mid-100s uh, in points. 
But Pedersen's not going to get that, but just like his effect, similar to the scenes you're seeing at that five on five effect, how like he's making others better, how he's so disciplined. Like it's stuff that I think people sometimes might take a little for granted, but just seeing him up close here on a day to day basis, like I think he's been the best. I think it's a tough one. I mean, Hedman is having he's he's having a better yeah, year than last season. There. I think yeah, yeah. But okay, I'll, but I'll throw Sabanajad out. I think yeah. I don't think he gets enough love. Well, he only missed some time there, so I think that's why his like, scoring numbers. Are yeah, down. but I mean, yeah. he's at a point game. per game. Yeah. I think he hit, hit twenty goals at yep. game thirty six or something. Point per game bleeds that Rangers in PK minutes. He's just a horse. Well, and for him, it's been huge because I feel like the past couple of years, it's been so much on him yeah. and Chris Kreider, right? And, and now Panarin's come in and Panarin's playing yeah. into like Jesper yeah. Fast. But, and but all that's these guys something we got to say about Mika too is, number one, he doesn't play with Panarin at 5-on-5. Five five, no, so he's no. not benefiting from that other than maybe softer matchups. Yep. Uh, on the other hand, he's their go-to guy defensively, so yep. he still get tough minutes. But also on the on the power play, he's he lost his spot. Uh, at the left circle. So he's in less of a position, I think, to produce uh, playing uh, the slot position. So it's just someone I like to throw out there. Uh, as you said, I said he missed time and he's in Panarin's shadow. So I don't think he gets enough love around the league. He's having a heck of a year. What uh, What's going on in California, man? Like, I feel like, you know, you're positioned there for a while there. Both like the California teams are doing well. And, and now it's like, yeah. you left. Yeah, I left. That's oh, why. You're, oh, you're gone. You're not there anymore. No, I'm in Calgary this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look at but that. I mean, they're struggling too. So, yeah. yeah. I was following Rasmus Anderson on a daily basis. Exactly. <laughs> He's a good talker. So, now you're on a good roll on so That's because Jonathan is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The curse, eh? Uh, I wanted to have a change up. And I wanted to live in Canada just to, uh, to experience. Well, Canada. Oh, nice! Just, I didn't even know that. Work, awesome. Working with hockey, you kind of want to, yeah, uh, do that, and it, it's been great. Now you're getting the authentic experience. Exactly. In, in terms of California, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, I we know we knew that the Ducks. I I actually had the Ducks as my upset. I always have to have an upset making the playoffs, just because I think that John Gibson could have. I mean carry them to that. Yes, had he yes, played like last yeah. year, yep. he hasn't. So that's it for them. The Kings, they are what they are. The Sharks, however, that's that's disappointing. Yeah. Hugely disappointing. Yeah, it's just going to be interesting to see what they do ahead of the trade deadline because I don't know what they can do. It's just moving small pieces, but, you know, trying to recoup what you can. Brendan Dillon or uh, well, Dr. Got, Carlson won't get you much. Yeah, they've got a lot of guys signed there for a long time, yeah. and they're not going to get any better. So, yeah, it's it's a tough spot. Where do you want to see Joe Thornton play if he waves? I don't know, man. It's another one where it'd be so weird seeing him in like a different uniform. So the go Bruce? back to Boston. So it's it's an old <laughs> uniform. Yeah, I guess there'd be something a little comforting in that. I mean, I think he can still play. Like you know, you're you're, spe- you're talking about like we're joking how the city the cities would still be leading the Canucks and all the fitness measurements if they played right now. Like similar, like Joel Thornton with his smarts and his like positioning. He's obviously got a bit more physicality in terms of yeah, his frame, he, but he like the old man's he can just hang out under the net there and just kind of like quarterback, just sling the puck around with the shooters all day. So I don't know. That'd be, it'd be interesting. I, I wonder if he well, even wants to move at this point though, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I, the Sharks were in Calgary the other week and I got so many, I talked to as, as many people as I could. And I mean, I got zero uh, impression either way. I feel it was like 50-50. People yeah. saying yes or no, is he going to wear it or not? So it's it was um, it's interesting. But it would be fun to see him go somewhere. I love that. Like the old guy without the cup. For yeah. me, that's almost the most interesting storyline the, in the playoffs. See, if, he, if, if they didn't have that run a couple of years ago, I know they lost to Pittsburgh. But like it felt like, in a way, he sort of shed that kind of like... Sure. playoff choker like hasn't ever done it even though they didn't win like that meant so much to both san jose and him that i feel like now he's he's at the point of his career he's probably just enjoying his life and he doesn't want to uproot his family and he's fine so i don't know uh, but you don't have to no it's just a, a couple just months, a few months so. yeah like, i don't uh, know like would, would it sort of soil his legacy no okay, it was especially like thing? you imagine if you went to a team he'd still be like what the third line center or whatever but like still probably playing power play minutes like he'd be a contributor it's not like he'd be like sitting at the bench cheering them mm-hmm. on like and he also doesn't have the one team thing yeah because he already true. played for two teams that's so, true. Yeah, that's so true. it's uh i think i am i mean i'm kind of hoping because it's always fun uh but yeah we'll see where it goes with that all right guys let's uh let's get out of here um plug some stuff what uh what are you working on i know you're in town doing a bunch of stuff so where can people check you out and where can they uh i well it's twitter and instagram uh uh i guess i got a facebook page too <laughs> so that's that unless you're you're a viewer from sweden so tune into our studio broadcast or if you have one of those illegal streaming services that i'm not uh allowed to acknowledge that they exist yeah uh but yeah uh that's that um so i'm sure i i'm not gonna spell uh my handle here 
Dimitri can link yeah. it, whatever, uh, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, and I, I don't write too much in English anymore, but I'll try to write more in English on Twitter just to to get fans. Well, I finally, pa- like, I finally passed you in followers. So yeah, it was about time. You know? About time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, you're great. I love following. What's your What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Ufe Bodin. Nice. Straight and up. Uh, all right, guys. Well, this was a blast. I'm glad we got an excuse to do this. And uh, yeah, it was kind of cool just chatting about the city. It, it is weird because. Like it's been a couple of years now, so they haven't. People haven't really been thinking about them, obviously, because they're not playing on a nightly basis. And, um, but I mean, it just shows the impact they had on everyone that they're getting a full week devoted oh. to them here, and that we uh, we're getting together to talk about them. So it's exciting and well earned. I mean, amazing careers. Okay, all right, guys. Well, uh, hopefully, we'll get this do this again sometime down the road. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.